Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that my next six-month leadership programme will start in January 2024. If you would like to be part of this transformational experience, you can find all the information you need on the Dive Deep Climb High website. As the previous delegate said, this course is a must for anyone invested in being the best leader they can be. Today, we're going to be taking a deep dive into change. Change is a constant in our lives, both personally and professionally. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes change can be so small, we barely recognise it. Buying a different brand of toothpaste, for example. I have my preference, but if something else is on special offer, I have no brand loyalty. But at the other end of the scale, change can be humongous. The birth of a child, the death of a loved one, being involved in a horrific accident. The list goes on and on. And for me, the most challenging aspect of change is how we react to it. Two people can experience the same change and have very different responses. I may curl up into a ball and want to withdraw from the world, while someone else wants to dance in the streets and rejoice in the change. So the question is, how, as leaders, can we hope to navigate this world? My guest today is an experienced operations and business change leader who set up his own consulting group, Method Avenue, in 2022. He also hosts a podcast called Know Your Shift, which focuses on people's experience of change. So I know he will have some helpful insights into how, as leaders, we can navigate the challenge that is change. As always, this promises to be a truly enlightening conversation. So please welcome the very talented Gareth Duffin. Gareth, hello. I'm Al, like, uh, that's that's a great intro. I don't think I could have written it better myself. So, um, So yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Oh, you are very welcome. So today we're going to be discussing change and transformation, your experience of it, my experience of it, what insights we can share with the listeners. Before we do that, I think it would be really great if you could share a little bit about your career journey and how you've ended up doing this work. Yeah, of course. So I think most people will probably know me from doing student accommodation um you know as i did for many years but before that and just leaving university i um i spent you know most of my 20s in hospitality so in hotels managing hotels and mainly in 
conference and banqueting and um, and operations. So I spent many years doing that. It's a very busy time and a lot of change, which uh, which probably uh, prepared me for the years to come. So you know, I worked in different hotels all around the UK, small hotels, big hotels, and was sort of working my way up in, in my career. And then I was sort of approaching 30 and uh, the work-life balance, shall we say, in hospitality sort of got to me a little bit, really. You know, it was a lot of hours, long hours, long days and very unpredictable. Therefore, I decided to move out the sector and moved into into student accommodation, which everybody told me was was really similar. You know, it's definitely similar. And they were on a big recruiting drive at the time in the industry from hotels. Maybe they still are. But they were looking for hospitality professionals as student accommodation shifted from, you know, your typical halls and blocks and, you know, it's, um, you know, a room with a bed and a sink in it to what we see today, which is, you know, a completely different product in a lot of senses. So they were actively looking for people from hospitality. It's a funny story, actually. So I got offered a role with a company for a for a site that was being being built. So it was brand new. So I was about to put in my notice to uh, to the hotel, and um, they said, uh, and they called me up and said, uh, "Oh, by the way, that the building's delayed by twelve months, so there's no job anymore." You're like, oh, okay, right. Uh, Fine. Um, so carried on doing, you know, carry on doing the job. And then I always remember it was New Year's Eve, which anyone that works in hotels will know is a, is a pretty crazy day. They called me back up and said, oh, managers just walked out at another site. Do you want this one? Like, okay, fair enough. So uh, so joined there um, and never looked back, really. Uh, I went into student accommodation and spent many years in that um, for lots of different companies and and had a thoroughly great time. And then COVID came along and moved into private residential so still a property sector but but moved into private residential rather than student accommodation for a couple of years and then as you alluded to in the intro decided to set up on my own and focus on change which hopefully we'll get to talk a lot about today but um, I think throughout those roles the one constant was change and I was having to manage change both at an operational level or a leadership level whilst doing the day job which i think is again another reason why i wanted to set up method avenue was i think companies are finding it typically hard to you know empowering their leaders and their managers to manage change projects uh particularly big organizational change projects while still managing a department managing a team managing sites as i was you know um and dealing with day-to-day customers whilst trying to do that. So I think my career has meandered through through change and lots of crazy changes to a point where, you know, I think I can give back that experience of helping them with change in whatever capacity they need me to. Fantastic. And just as you were, I was laughing at your career history. So, so similar. We both started out <laughs> in the world of hospitality and then moved across and thought, no, I'm never going back to hospitality. <laughs> it is a challenging environment. So, change. Could you share with us one of the change projects that you did whilst you were, were working before you set up Method? that really sort of that was a great learning ground for you in terms of those elements of change that you've now taken forward into the work that you do and how you help your clients yeah of course so i think um 
everybody thinks I talk about the pandemic a lot, which I probably do, but I think lots of change came out of that. Um, so one project involved in was, was sort of post-pandemic. So looking at an operating model for a company, which geographically dispersed, you know, they had sites all over the country and, uh, well, they had an office, but they'd never used it because they set it up just before lockdown. So they had an office, they'd started to recruit people in a certain location and then everybody, obviously everything shut down. So everybody kind of got through the pandemic period and then came out the other side. And so they had an office, nobody had ever been there and the people out in the regions had learned to sort of kind of look after themselves really because they hadn't seen anyone you know places were all over the country so what they wanted to do was look at an operating structure that would look after the people so give them what they wanted from their work life you know whether that was in in office or not but also looking at the the managers that were on site looking after customers day to day how did we provide them with the support that they needed whilst they were out there without having huge teams based all around the country that, you know, I think, and I think that's the the challenge a lot of operators have found within student accommodation or, or within residential sector is ensuring that that consistency when your portfolio could be across the UK, it could be across Europe without having huge teams of people just doing the same thing. So sat down and looked at, at the operating model for that. And it's much wider than just having, you know, it's easy to just focus on, right, what roles do we have? What are they doing each day? You know, what does the central office function look like and services and everything else? You know, because it branches off into so many different areas. Do they have the right technology? You know, do they have the right systems? Are there processes in place? What happens if this happens? You know, who's checking on this? So it always branches out into into something much bigger. So what we learned from doing that was we decided to do a bit of an exercise, which, you know, I can't say this is a scientific study because I've only done it the once. <laughs> so I don't <laughs> want anyone thinking that, you know, this is guaranteed results. So what I always find is, you know, change theory will tell you to build a consensus for your change right at the beginning. You know, that's grounded in every piece of change management, training, whatever you'll receive. Build a consensus around the change you want to do. What people don't do enough is the step before that, you know, and identifying exactly what people think about what should change. They they decide in a leadership group, right, we need a new system. We're going to do this. So taking the system, so focusing on the system example, the leadership group thought that they needed a new property management system good enough. And that was probably right. You know, there's, you know didn't disagree with that. So we took a group of, the team from different departments, different seniority levels, you know, to try and get real consensus and split them into two groups. So the first group, we asked them a question, which was, do you think we need a new property management system? And the language is really important there. Do you think we need a new property management system? So, you know, we workshopped that in one group, we found out what they thought. Do we need one? Why do we need one? Everything else. The other group we gave them a slightly different question, which was, do you want a new property management system? And if so, why do you want a new property management system or why do you not want one? And then we brought the groups together at the end and you can imagine how the answers are very different. But by asking the group's needs and wants and then bringing them together, we built 
a bigger consensus around the fact that actually we did need one. We did need a new system. The company did. And a large majority of them wanted it, but we let them take us there. And I think there's so many change management projects or transformations, not just in digital, but in other ways, instead of, right, this is what we want to do. We're going to go and tell them we're moving to this system and this is what we're doing. Actually building that consensus a step earlier, I think that's taught me a huge amount. And I think if more people did that, they'd lose less people because that does happen along change projects. People will just get fed up and and they're more likely to devote their time to it because you know when we come in as change consultants externally, you know, that is our focus. We know the people on the ground, are, I've got lots of other focuses other than just you know this change project. They're just trying to keep the lights on and, and keep the customers happy. But if you build that consensus earlier on and let them take you there, the caveat to that is if they turn around and go, no, we don't need one, we don't want one, which is still good insight if you get that, because then you should be looking at your business case again. You know, if you've built a business case for a change project and then your teams are telling you, we don't need it, we don't want it, well, maybe you should go back and review it. And I'm sure some people do and I'm sure some people don't. But yeah, that was a particularly interesting one where we gained real insight from the team and, you know, and that project is is sort of coming to a close now and it really helped getting the buy-in early on by asking them those different questions. Like I say, it's not a scientific peer-reviewed study. It was uh, something we came up with, but um, but I definitely think people would use that. That's really interesting. And 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 I really love that idea that that actually so often when we're doing change, it's the people at the top, whoever they may be, wherever they sit in the structure, the people leading that change go, right, we need this. And actually we are just going to fight really hard to get everyone on board. But actually what you're saying is there's a piece before that. And actually it's about... I think there's an element of curiosity there to see because so often in my experience, people on the ground come up with things that as, as managers and leaders, we don't even know about, but I love that idea about, do you want it? Do you need it? So tell me, were there different responses to those two questions? Did they add to the mix or or did they eventually come to the same place? I think largely they came to a consensus. I think it did depend on role because, you know, particular system, you know, the finance team largely hated it, you know, so therefore they're going to be, yeah, we need a new one. We want a new one. Whereas others would think, well, I'm getting by. That's not my focus. My focus is on speaking to tenants, making sure that, you know, it, it executes a lease. It can get people in the room. They can pay their rent. Don't necessarily need it. But it also helps you identify those people that you might need to involve more in the um, selection of the system you know because you can see early on that those people that are a bit like well the system we use is fine they might not be aware of of what else could be used so if you include them on the demonstration you know when you do the product demo or whatever else um, and we do this in all sorts of things not just systems but systems is one that you know comes up a lot is you, know, you involve those people and they go, wow, actually that looks a lot better than what I, what I do currently. But they're not aware of that because it isn't their sole focus. And the other part of that discussion that you have with them and their needs and wants is 
you're kind of preparing them for how hard the journey is going to be because change is hard. Change projects are really hard. And you're kind of saying, well, okay, so you're saying you need it. This is what's involved. Do we still need it? <laughs> you know, and seeing if their opinions change. So so to answer your question, there was a large consensus, but then you know, the nuance of who is saying yes, who is saying no, why they're saying yes or no. And then you can focus your initial brief because, you know, I've sat in loads of loads of change projects where, you know, and, and now it's largely on Teams or on Zoom where somebody's prepared a slide deck, they've decided to make a change, here's the business case, this is how we're going to do it. And people go, well, okay. <laughs> and that's it. You know, whereas if you take it a step back, you don't even need to present a slide deck. You know, nobody wants to do that, to sit there and tell people we're going to change because they already know, they're already involved. And they already know that the hard work's coming. And you will naturally get volunteers out of that as well. Because there's always some people. I used to be that annoying person that always volunteered. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll volunteer for that project. But yeah, so you can also help build a working group because you'll see who wants to get involved and who doesn't. Yeah. And you alluded to it there that change is really hard. And if you Google change, the stat that is often quoted is that 80% of change projects fail so in your experience for any managers and and leaders out there in addition to to that initial wants and needs part do you have any other tips or tricks that people can use to ensure that they are part of the 20 percent success rate not the 80 percent failure I think the first one is to set realistic time expectations and know that that time will change. So if you're expecting to deliver something and your best estimate is six months, you know, to to change, you know, whether you're restructuring a department or, you know, making a change to your product, you know, say you, you've written down all the stages that you're going to go through and all the things that need to be done, you know, and it's six months, like, that is a best guess. The most experienced change managers in the world will rarely get that right. So being prepared for it to change because you're going to have to stay the course. And now everyone will talk about being agile, you know, like it's a you know a very popular term to agile project management. What that really means is things are going to change and you need to be able to adapt to them. And the best piece of advice, which sounds really simple, is to keep going because You've seen so many change projects where, for example, doing a, a data migration one, you know, where we're removing data from one system to another and the requirements then change because life is happening. Business is changing, different investors come on board, different assets are purchased and all of a sudden your project's changing again. And it's easy to get lost in the in the weeds with that a little bit because you think, well, I've just, I've just done all this. I've got to do it again. That happens, you know, and, and you need to confront the the kind of brutal truth on that, that what you set out in your project scoping document or whatever, however you do it at the beginning, will probably not be what you end up with. So you need to kind of have an open mind. And I think that's, again, that's what people talk about being agile, but it's more about having an open mind that things will change. And everybody needs to be open to that as well. Um, you know, everybody that's involved in the process. So I think the biggest tip for that is, keeping an open mind and just be prepared for things to change within your project because they will and setting realistic time expectations. Now I talk about your scoping document won't be what you end up with. 
the more you can write down at the beginning, the better. If everybody understands their roles, when your project you estimated six months then takes a year because lots of factors, you know, you can have the operational team, you know, you've said that they can commit so many hours a week to it alongside their day job. Things happen. So being agile, albeit it is an overused term, you know, I like to simplify terms when it comes to agile, when it comes to project management, because everyone thinks that project management is really rigid. You know, you've got a Gantt chart, nobody can move from the Gantt chart and the project manager is there to take actions and make sure everyone's doing what they're doing. Being agile to me means being open-minded and reacting to things that happen without too much, you know, not looking at that it's a problem that things take longer. If the end result is where you want to get to, you will get there. You've just got to keep going. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, time is one. And I I remember when I was doing a project, and I think it's about understanding where you absolutely need to stick to a deadline. So mine was a restructuring. And in the years previous, there had been discussions about restructuring, which creates fear and anxiety in everybody. And they'd never happened. So I stood up and said, we are going to be doing this. And these are some key dates. And I made that promise and come hell or high water, I was going to stick to that because I realised how important it was. But I also like that idea about keeping going because so often with change projects, it'll start and there'll be all the hoo-ha and it's brilliant. And then things start to go wrong and it feels like it loses momentum. And somebody needs to hold that vision, don't they? And they need to see it through because it is so frustrating. I mean, I think that 80% is because people just give up and it's too much like hard work. And actually somebody with the passion and, and the vision needs to keep going. And I love what you said about adapting to change and recognizing that what you started with or where you thought you were going to end up may not be where you end up, but you'll end up somewhere that takes you further forward and you can move on from that yeah i mean and and change i think change is happening at a faster pace than it ever was you know and yeah i read a quote from someone and i always do this on on my podcast so i don't want to do it in yours where i misquote people but i'll say it as i best remember it is that transformation and change is now business as usual because the environment changed the politics changes regulation everything else you know when you've got a project that with all best intentions that you know like you were talking about doing an organizational change you know you you start off on one path because at the time that is the right you set out everything that you need to and that is the right change but then things happen people leave that can be you know a a big one for for change projects that you know someone that was heavily involved goes and works for somebody else that can be huge and project fatigue as well. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, crises happen in, in companies. And and I think that can always derail change projects because sometimes it's a, it's an excuse as well because it's hard work. Not that I think everyone's making excuses, but it it's not always top of people's agenda when they're you know, being pushed on their KPIs, on their objectives, on, on everything else to deliver company performance. You know, that is key as number one. That's why the company exists, but also having to give their time onto this. And again, going back to what I said about needs and wants for something that they might not 100% be behind, that's hard. So you need enthusiastic people around projects. You need people that can just 
you know, take the knocks, get back up and and keep going. And I think hospitality certainly certainly taught me that over the years. I'm laughing away. I totally and utterly agree. <laughs> so communication is the key to everything. How important is communication in a change project? I thought about this before because I thought you were going to ask me about communication today. So uh, I thought about this a little bit and I think I can only go on my own experience where at times I've shared too much information, which people didn't necessarily need to know. And then when something changes, I say, oh, hold on a minute, you, you told me it was going that way. You know, of course, it's massively important. Um, but knowing what to share and when is really important and how. You know, I, I do a lot of, of work around communication with businesses, um, not necessarily in, just in change projects, but just on on how they communicate as business. Because, you know, and projects will always come down to organisation. Organisation and administration, because otherwise a project just meanders along. Now, if people are communicating, and, and we do see this, and this is this is an exercise we run as well around communication. So do a bit of a workshop around communication where we ask them to get their laptops and their phones out. And um, we, we don't obviously get them to share what they put in their messages, but we find, you know, people are communicating about the same subject, maybe on WhatsApp and on Teams and then an email. And you think, okay, well, and they've got all these different threads going on in different different areas. So we try to um, shine a light on that sometimes, which can be an uncomfortable truth for people, particularly for busy managers. And I've been there, you know, I've been that person that I think, oh God, I need this. Where's this report? And I'll WhatsApp someone because I was talking to them on WhatsApp a minute ago, but then they forget that you WhatsApp them because it's not in their inbox. You know, if it's some people, if it's in their inbox, it's more important. So when it comes to not just projects, but communication on the whole, we do a lot of work with people on on setting rules of engagement for a communication. So again, I give another example. I don't want to name the company, but a company I worked for, we had a Teams chat and one finance team every month would remind people that had one day left to get all their invoices sorted out before month end. And this would come on the whole company Teams chat because they wanted to communicate that to everyone in the company, right? How often do you miss a Teams message that's on a group chat? You know, like, uh, and the reason I give that example, I think two messages later was happy birthday, such and such. Uh, hope you're having a lovely day. Yeah. And you think, oh my God, I, hold on, there's there's invoices over here that I've got sort of happy birthday on, oh, right? And you forget. And I think that this is the work that we do. And I say we have a bit of fun with it when we do the do these sessions, but it's setting the rules of engagement for communication. And anyone listening to this, I'd implore them to just have a look at their work phone, their Teams, their Slack, their email, and see what they're communicating about in what format. And again, even when you're in the office, you know, I'm talking about doing it digitally when you're in the office. You know, when you say such and such, where's this? Or, you know, have, have you remembered to do that? Or how are they supposed to remember that? So implore everybody to get out and and think about their rules of engagement for communication, which makes it sound terribly formal. But, you know, are you prompting people about important deadlines on Slack or on uh, WhatsApp or a text message or a phone call? Or are you actually setting out your expectations in an email? This is a deadline. And I think people are afraid to ask for things, you know, say, I need this by 9am on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to, to set those sort of formal deadlines in communication because they don't want to seem like that demanding 
leader or manager i need this by then because that's the you know that's the deadline but that's important setting expectations and i think there's there's a lot of that where you know i see that when looking at project management software you know i'll go into somebody's projects that they've done what they've asked us to take a look at and there's all these tasks on there that don't have deadlines or the deadlines have slipped and nobody's done anything about it you think well have you communicated this no has it reminded you about it possibly um, so there's loads you can do around communication, but the first place to start is looking at what you communicate and how, you know, because again, it's, everyone will have their personal preferences, but for me, if it's important, I need emailing about it. You know, like my wife sent me things on WhatsApp and I just forget. And she gets so annoyed with me that she sent, she's oh God, I haven't emailed it because if it's an email, it sits there in my inbox until I do something with it. If it's on WhatsApp, I've forgotten about it five minutes later. But that's okay for informal stuff, you know, that you want to communicate. But if it's if it's something that's really important, if your team don't know that how important that is, then they're they're not going to buy into into your deadline. So sorry, that was a really long answer about communication, but it's something we're really passionate about. I think can really make a difference. It's absolutely brilliant, and I, I have to say, in every initiative that I've ever worked on communication has always been part of the problem and part of the solution but it's never ever been the volume of communication there's never been an issue with the volume it's the what and the how and as you were talking about that rules of engagement in terms of communication I was almost thinking it's very very similar to the want and need Mm. that you talked about for a change project you know what is the communication you want And what do you need? And when do you need it? And not being afraid to say that. So I completely get that. So, I mean, honestly, some really, really great tips there in terms of communication, in terms of that bit before you start, that how do you get more consensus and about time expectations and the ability to be flexible and not be welded to the outcome and what might happen as you move on that journey of change. I mean, fantastic. Thank you so, so much. So when have you had to dive deep and what impact did that have? I tried to think of one that I'd not told before. So I don't think I've ever told this story before, Mel. So, uh, uh, Oh, fabulous. So I moved hotels earlier on in my career and I took on a really big job that I was really excited. I fought really hard to get because I wanted it. It was a big, large conference hotel. I was conference and banquet manager. I role I think you know well, and you know I was dealing with thousands of delegates a day. It was a huge place, and I'd managed you know busy departments before and done really well in my career. And I moved here, and it was just a complete new animal. You know, it was it was just the the department was a bit of a beast, if I'm honest. You know, we're talking hundred staff. You know, twenty odd conferences going a day, turnarounds, all sorts. You know, some really high profile clients, and um, the department was a mess when I got in there. But I, I really struggled with the adapting to a different business and a different way of working. I was I was quite young in my career, and I'd never taken on such a challenge before. You know, and uh, it was a few months in, I think, and you know, I was, I was still struggling a little bit to really get to grips with the department. And I think you always do that in new roles. So, one day, my boss's office was behind reception, as it normally is in the 
in a hotel as an office behind it. And the safe was in there. I was duty manager, so I needed to get something out of the safe for the reception team or whatever. And um, I'll never forget this. So walk in and my my boss's desk faced the door and her computer was on. And there was an email from her boss basically saying that we're not sure if you made the right decision hiring Gareth. The department's really struggling. What do we do here? You know, and you think, oh God, like that's a real, that's a real kick. You know, when you read that about yourself that somebody else has written. Um, and I'm still on good terms with these people, so I don't think they're gonna listen, but uh <laughs> it doesn't matter. So so I read that and you think, oh my God, like I, I really am struggling. And you think, well, I'm working really hard. Certainly no lack of effort. First thing was, oh, what are they talking about? Of course I can do the job, you know that. That that's the initial phase you go through when you when you read something like that. And then sort of look at yourself a little bit afterwards and go, right, what can I do? So I really had to push myself to learn and work in a different way because I'd always, you know, I'd always found that if I had a problem, and and I think a few managers in my career will probably tell you this is the way I work. If I have a problem, I'll outwork it. So I'll just work harder and longer and and just you know i'll push myself so hard that we'll fix the problem when you get to a certain leadership position and level you can't do that because the business is too big there's too much going on i can't set up every conference room i can't serve every customer myself i can't do that but what i did do was was sort of force myself and and i did still outwork the problem as well but really pushed myself to put in place things to manage people rather than just you know, fixing the problem by doing it myself. And it was a real tough period for me because, you know, I was already working 18 hour days, six days a week. You know, you can't give much more than that. Um, and, and one of the things I learned was, you know, give yourself some rest as well. But, um, but yeah, I really had to sort of swallow that. And, you know, I turned that department around and, uh, and eventually it was in a great place and everyone was really happy with me. But, um, but yeah, I really had to dive deep into whatever was inside me, as you would say, to uh, to work in a different way. Thank you for sharing that. And and I think that's a wonderful example because sometimes when we get, I mean, you got that feedback in a, a sort of very direct but indirect way as well. But actually it gave you that opportunity to really dive deep and look at how you were working and changes that you could make. And it takes incredible resilience, I think, when you get that, not to just throw in the towel, but look inward and say, okay, what what could I change? How could I do this differently? So thank you. And when I look back at that, you know, I, I remember the, the sort of one-to-one chats I was having with my manager and everyone else. And you sort of look back in a different way that they were probably being a bit too nice, you know, because, you know, trying to support you and, you know, rather than just giving you that email. And that's kind of taught me throughout my career that, you know, if somebody praises something I've done, that's, that's nice, but it doesn't last very long. Whereas, you know, if somebody criticizes something I've done or going into business for yourself, you know, you get a lot of rejection when you're in business for yourself, when you're pitching ideas or pitching businesses or or anything else is that's great for me. Like, it, yeah, it makes me makes me feel rough for a little while but actually that's what i need i think that was definitely a, definitely a positive although in, in the first 5 minutes it didn't feel like a positive reading that feedback but i've learned now that 
that's that's what I need. So I kind of, you know, when I get a rejection from, you know, I'm trying to sell to a business or do a project for someone and they, they decide to go somewhere else, you know what, it hurts for a little while. But actually, I then see an uptick in my productivity and, and ideas and creativity in the weeks that follow. Um, so, so yeah, I've turned it into a positive, hopefully. Yeah. You and I work exactly the same way. I think you, <laughs> I think we have to when we have our own businesses. So when have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? Um, I think, and again, I'm going to talk about it, the pandemic. I think I was managing a big team nationwide that, as we know, turned off overnight. You know, and I think from a personal standpoint, when Boris sat down in front of us on that, I think it was a Sunday night, wasn't it? And told us we all had to stay at home. My wife was eight months pregnant. You know, I was working a very high pressured job and suddenly you're having to make decisions and deal with things that you've never dealt with before. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. You're worried about your own position. You know, I think in terms of is the company still going to be going on? Because the first thing I thought when when watching that in the pandemic was you think about your family and how what, what impact that's going to have. Literally, the next thought that came to mind was, we're not going to collect any rent for the rest of the year because all the students are going to go home. Will I still have a job in a week's time when you know your wife's pregnant? Yeah, got a mortgage to pay. And you don't want to be selfish. But And I think it's over-talked about when it comes to leadership is, is empathy. To start with, I, I probably lacked empathy because... I was thinking about myself and my family. And I think that happened to a lot of people in the pandemic that, you know, they sort of rightly or wrongly sort of, you know, thought about themselves before others. And then it started to branch out. And that taught me a lot about, you know, about my team and the customers and having empathy for them, for everybody's situation in the pandemic was really different. And, you know, I was thrust into this position where I'm having to to deal with customers, parents, government ministers, the team all sat in my bedroom. You know, I mean, who had done that before? And that taught me a lot again about myself, but where I felt like a fish that climbed a tree was I was able to to make decisions for the right reasons, you know, and, and really look at the whole picture compared to probably previously. Like talking about hospitality, like I think I lacked empathy as a leader in hospitality hugely. You know, people had family situations and all sorts of I just needed the right amount of people in on the day to do the job. And then when you get thrust into the pandemic where everyone's got, you know, different situations and different worries going on and, and you know, different different people reacted to the threat of the virus in different ways. So, yeah, I think, um, I think the pandemic taught me a lot about how I could do things a bit differently. Um, and hopefully I still apply that today. Love it. Thank you so much. Empathy such a key skill that we need brilliant it's been a great conversation how can people get in touch find out more find out more about method more about your podcast what's the best way for them to do that well i said to somebody the other day that i'm hopefully bridging the line between being active and annoying on linkedin on linkedin at method avenue you'll you'll find us there or search for for know your shift and they can listen to our episode mel that you obviously kind of recorded with me and the other episodes so yeah look for know your shift podcast on um, on spotify or apple or anything else that's the best way to to probably find me is posting regularly on linkedin fantastic i will make sure that all those links go in the show notes such a brilliant brilliant conversation 
given me personally so much to think about. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today? Um, it's not one of mine. And again, I don't want to misquote someone, but I don't know if you ever watched the the Drive to Survive program on Netflix about Formula One. But there's a guy in there that was CEO of McLaren, Zach Brown. He talks about, and so did um, the guy from Mercedes, talk about blaming the process, not the person when something goes wrong. And I realized I'd been doing that for a long time, but I'd never put words to it, is if something goes wrong in your business or your organization, do you look first at the process and how you can change the process or the system? Or do you look at the person that's perhaps made a mistake or something else and their default is to blame the process not the person and i think it, if everyone could do that there'd be a lot more change projects uh, because people would be looking at where processes and systems are going wrong but i think if i could impart one piece of advice is when something goes wrong in your business blame the process not the person and then hopefully it won't happen again Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive Deep, Climb High can do leadership in a world of